Welcome back to the ICU Life and Recovery Podcast. My name is Mark and I am the host. And I am just here to tell you I'm speaking to you from the future after the episode you're about to listen to has been recorded. It was recorded in May and then I was hit with some periods of ill health. So it has taken a long time to get done. I hired an editor to do the editing this time and there were some issues in recording so the bit that follows now i'm going to sound a little bit tinny but my guest's audio sounds pretty good i just wanted to say thank you for listening and i hope you really enjoy this one because it is a really great episode with another one of my my dear friends who are part of the icu world so i really appreciate everyone for listening and hanging in and enjoying these and i hope you really enjoy this one thank you Welcome back to the ICU Life and Recovery Podcast. My name is Mark and I am the host and I am here today with a very special guest and friend, Shigan. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do? Hello everyone. My name is Shagan Olusanya. I am probably better known as the co-director of Monani Cakes. This is a beautiful wedding cake and confectionery company and we make cakes and desserts for anyone and everyone and find us at monanicakes.com. When I'm not doing that, I'm not quite fully independently wealthy yet, so I work as an intensive care doctor, and I have probably been the UK's longest-serving intensive care registrar. I also do a little bit of ultrasound and a little bit of social media, so you can find me on Twitter at Iceman underscore EX. Thank you for for, uh, coming. And and what are we going to be talking about today? A bit of anything and everything. I mean, intensive care is an incredibly broad subject and it covers the wholeness of human experience and I'm interested in all aspects of intensive care and of course it's been it's now very topical it's been in the news lots um, with COVID and with everyone from Elon Musk telling us how we should be running intensive care so yeah it'd be great to just share some general thought. So you said you're, you have an interest in, in ultrasound so I know that that's a focus so point of care ultrasound can you tell us a bit about what that is for people that that don't know maybe patients like myself or okay traditionally if you go back kind of 20 30 years ago ultrasound machines were big and they were heavy and as you can imagine ultrasound is a very valuable tool for using in diagnosing and managing patients because the machines were so big um, you often had to take the patient to the machine to get a scan when people are critically unwell, that's not necessarily the, that's tra- transferring people to get images is not necessarily the best thing. So there was this move towards bringing the imaging closer to the patient. The technology has improved. The machines have got smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where they're the size of laptops and they can give you such powerful diagnostic information. And so you can take the imaging to the bedside and that's called point of care ultrasound because it's ultrasound at the point of care. That, again, is also traditionally done by highly trained people in intensive care, in diagnostic imaging, and they're classically from radiology and also people from a cardiology background who perform point of care towards getting the doctors at the bedside. We just just had a big, like I had a big freeze there for you just after you talked. Yeah, just after you spoke about cardiology. That's okay. Yeah, so it was about uh, That's right. If I go back kind of 10 seconds. So traditionally, imaging at the bedside is done by specialists in imaging who are usually from radiology and some experts from cardiology 
who perform specialist imaging of the heart, what we call echocardiography. However, waiting around when you have a very sick patient for one of those specialists to be available is not always the best and might result in potentially them getting more sick, in some cases dying in very important diagnoses. So over the last probably 20 years, this idea of point of care ultrasound provided by the intensive care specialist has arisen. And this has result, and this has basically resulted in lots of intensivists like myself going off and learning a lot of these skills that are traditionally done, performed by radiologists and cardiologists. So that is echocardiography, ultrasound of the abdomen, so being able to look at liver, lean stomachs, bowels, and looking at lungs. Lungs is a very interesting one because that was actually developed by an intensivist, not a radiologist. So there's a whole specialist area of lung ultrasound in the critical ill. We've also been using it to make um, procedures a lot more safe. So before we used to put in big lines and things like that that we'd use to treat people in intensive care based on anatomy and landmarks. So we'd have a feel for whether we thought the best place was and stick a needle in and hope for the best. Now we can use ultrasound imaging to accurately guide our needles directly to the targets, identify if there's any anatomical variation, so we should so areas that we shouldn't be sticking needles into, and generally just make things more comfortable and safer for both the patient and for us. So that's kind of what point of care ultrasound is in a nutshell. Yeah, I always found the sort of idea of point of care ultrasound seemed like something very obvious, but clearly wasn't, because I know uh, having been in ICU, I, I don't think point of care ultrasound is really a, a thing in, in the, the ICU unit I was in because it's a very a very small uh, unit within a, mm. a district general hospital. So I remember being taken, well, I don't remember per se, uh, I've been told about being taken to get CT scans and uh, other types of scans and, and having respiratory issues and just having very hard time being able to get imagery. So always when I kind of became exposed to the, the sort of focus movement, it seemed quite well, yeah, that makes sense. But if you can do a if you can do some sort of scan which will give you information, whether it's as good as as a CT as a debate that I'm not qualified to have, but surely the ability to have some sort of information is going to be more useful to you than not getting the information and potentially making patient worse in the process of trying to get it. It seemed, yeah, it just seemed like a kind of logical thing that why were we not doing this? Uh, because in, in my lifetime as a patient, ultrasound machines have been quite mobile. So it seemed like, is this just a how we always did it issue that uh, we couldn't get over that momentum of well, we've always done imaging this way, so we can't we can't change because um, healthcare is a bit like that and, and becoming a bit inflexible. Yeah, no, you you raise a very good point. Point of care ultrasound has suffered quite a lot from exactly those reasons. There is fear of the unknown, fear of. I mean, it's it actually there is also some degree of, sadly to say, a degree of politics. If you're a radiologist and a car or a cardiologist, and again, there are loads of this is not a slander to my colleague to my radiology and cardiology friends and colleagues. I've met many amazing people. At the same time, if you think about it, if you get paid to do a skill, somebody else learning how to do that skill that's outside of your guild or your specialty potentially threatens your income from that skill. And so 
internationally and internationally, there has been some pushback from certain societies who are very keen to kind of gatekeep the skill for themselves. There's also the issue of clinical governance, so safety. People who do radiology and cardiology and learn imaging are very highly trained in, in the, those imaging modalities. And they spend years, you know, it takes four years to become a consultant radiologist with a significant amount of time devoted to ultrasound. It takes two years of training to become accredited in echocardiography with the British Society of Echocardiography, for instance. And, you know, you have to do set, you have to do a set number of images and learn a whole bunch of skills and image a wide variety of people. And so this idea of intensivists doing a couple of scans and suddenly suddenly diagnosing all these weird and wonderful things in their units, it's, you know, it's quite challenging. You have to ask who's supervising, who's providing the quality control and things like that. And then, of course, the last thing was availability of machines. I mean, even though the machines are small, they're still not cheap. It's only until recently that, so there's now a new bit, a, a new bit of kit called the Butterfly IQ, which is a really tiny ultrasound probe that attaches to your mobile phone. And that, you can buy that for about £2,000, which is amazing. That's really transformative because it now puts, you know, amount now means that someone like myself with a, with a couple of months, you know, with, you know, maybe a, you know, a few months savings could potentially look at affording one of these, one of these devices. But that said, even the laptop devices in hospitals still will, will still set you back 20, 20 grand, 30 grand for a decent one, for a really good one, £50,000. £50, and so that means cost is an issue. Maintenance of the device is an issue. Quality control is an issue. You know, making sure that whichever intensivists use it are appropriately trained and um, have appropriate governance and are looked after properly. And so it actually is not just as simple as just buy a machine and off you go, which in some ways is kind of how it started. It's about making sure that all of the systems are in place to make sure that the person performing it stays safe and the patient who's receiving it stays safe. Yeah, and and I think... It kind of boils down to the the experts, which will be your radiologists and your, your um, cardiologists. Is it does everybody that needs to do ultrasound imaging need to be an expert, or can they just be a skilled practitioner? Particularly as although the ICU environment is a broad ICU is the is is a general specialist area, I would say because people in ICU will be affected by everything, whether it is just by the massive organ failures of being close to death or just by the fact of a medical ICU could have a patient in every bed with a different malfunctioning organ or cause. So the knowledge base has to be broad. So does this, do you need to be a specialist within this technique in all of these these different organ specialties, probably. But I suppose it is a kind of argument of these experts are limited in number and are at the behest of the entire hospital. So you're not going to have a radiologist specifically attached to just do imaging for ICU. So there's no viable solution to this, short of doing something like that, which is never never going to be uh, is, is never going to happen so the, the the sort of solution and i and i get that that it's kind of like everybody is going to push back when something seems to be encroaching in their silo they don't they don't want and they they they've they're very protective of their their area their field but 
is it that we've we I say in the general term have we constructed healthcare in the wrong way because of this that this silo system is a problem in a lot of areas so in delirium this is a this is a problem that we encounter all the time of that and it's it's maybe the opposite of this in that no one wants it no one wants delirium no one wants to to take ownership of it but in actual fact it's everybody's issue everybody needs to and it, it, it's maybe the, the kind of opposite here in that you're you're, um, you're looking to broaden the, the availability of this and i think there is a, a legitimate concern in that how do we ensure quality and consistency of training of these people how do we ensure that their skill sets are remaining at a level that is acceptable to perform this but saying what is essentially oh this is going to be difficult so we shouldn't do it isn't isn't the right way to do it i think that this is mm. a way to make things better we just need to figure out how to do it safely and and ensure everyone's at the at a minimum skill level which isn't going to be at a radiologist level because that's ridiculous to to you have to trust also that these people that are trained in the skill that if they look at something and they're like this is i don't know what this is that they will then move it to those experts that they're not they know they're not experts and they should know what they don't know which is a that's that's a hard thing but and it will ease a lot of things for these experts that they're not having to address the I don't want to call it the mundane, but like the the sort of common things that could be addressed by someone who's not an expert. And I just feel that in the delirium movement, this is I I feel like I've banged my head against the wall so many times with with the trying to to kind of get through the barriers that it seems like there's a similar issue here that we're sticking to a rigid system that was designed a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years ago that really needs to needs to change or flex or kind of move because that there's more people more people that need healthcare, so things need to be delivered in a different way so that we can keep up. You no, know, there was a lot of sort of uh, I remember there was a lot of pushback on things like nurse practitioners and critical care mm. practitioners. Mm. Oh yes. Uh, and and I don't think MD would, well, there probably are people that would say that it's not been an improvement, but this is another thing that when we look back, I think even in 10 or 20 years, once we kind of get past that critical point of of getting most people to to be on, that we'll look back at it and go, oh yeah, that was that was the right thing to do. Do you, do you feel that we're, we just kind of need to get over the hill and then once we're over the hill people will go oh once they see the 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 fruits of the labor that they'll go oh actually this has improved things or yeah absolutely and there is a i mean there is a strong argument to say that perhaps that tipping point has already happened and that tipping point one of the biggest things that moved it forward was covid covid because infection control was at such a premium and you know transferring patients outside of the intensive care units for imaging became quite challenging 
part because of the infection control risks. So bedside imaging became more and more important. And most intensive care units, as a result, have now had an influx of actually really quite high-end ultrasound equipment. So the availability of equipment is no longer an issue, um, at least in most places. And also was also very strongly and it was encouraged to some degree by big societies like the British Society, the British Society for Radiology and the British Society of Echocardiography, who in order to save on the amount of PPE that was being used and save on their experts being exposed to potentially infectious patients, changed their guidelines to encourage point of care assessment as a first line approach. The other thing, the other thing that's happened from the other side is that a lot of in, a lot of more intensivists have actually gone off and learned and trained themselves to the level of high-end experts and have learned advanced echocardiography to the level of to the level of a sonographer or consultant cardiologist, haven't learned advanced radiology to the level of radiology registrar or a radio or a sonographer. So we're able to now have experts actually at the bedside delivering these skills within the intensive care unit. Um, and this is progressed to the point where there are some intensive care units in the UK that are almost completely that or perform the vast majority of their imaging by themselves, by their own practitioners at the bedside, because they now have the skill set to do it. And that's huge. That means patients don't wait to get imaging. The imaging can be done right there as you're seeing the patient, sometimes even on the ward round. You can get an answer to your question, is there a DVT? Is there fluid in the chest? Is there bowel obstruction? You can just do it right there and then. And that's that's quite a significant sea change because before, the tools we had at the bedside were essentially our hands, our eyes, our ears, and a stethoscope. This is a real transformation. And I think now we're just starting to come over that hill and just accept it and accept that it's the norm. And so the next step really is ensuring that there are enough people able to deliver this skill. Now, in response to what you're saying, you're talking about whether everybody needs to perform at the level of a cardiologist or radiologist. You're absolutely right, you don't. It's like saying that everybody who drives a car needs to be able to drift it round, drift it round a corner at 70 miles an hour, like Michael Schumacher driving, oh, Michael Schumacher, God bless him, driving in the Grand Prix back in his day. Not everyone needs to be able to do that. What most people need to be able to do is get to the shops and back safely. And point of care ultrasound is exactly the same. Not everybody needs to be able to identify the rarest of congenital cardiac syndromes. What you need to be able to know is whether the heart works or not, and if it looks normal or not. And there are a whole set of, similar to the UK driving test, which is essentially a basic test of competency. There are a whole bunch of basic tests of competency for point of care ultrasound that have been introduced by multiple societies around the world. In the UK, we have a society um, or um, a committee called the FUSIC Committee, Focused Ultrasound and Intensive Care. And they have written a syllabus for basic ultrasound that, be that we believe that anyone can be trained at the bedside to use fairly quickly in a very, in a nice directed way to just answer very simple yes no questions and so far quite a few people have been trained in it and it seems to be working quite well so you mentioned the the big the big topic of the day uh covid now covid seems to have been one of the biggest helps to intensive care since probably its its inception uh during the polio uh pandemic but um my my worry is that intensive care is getting 
all the news that's getting funding poured in just now while this big massive crisis is happening my worry is that as soon as the pandemic has become a, an afterthought that we're going to return back to where we were and progress has been achieved while the the going is good as we would say uh, while there's a, a lot of funding my, my worry is that that the ICU will get forgotten again as that mm. as that room you only go to when you're when you're near the, near the end or or really struggling and i don't know how we how we keep the momentum going there's there's a lot of great icu research that's going on what the delirium work and other things that are happening and i just as a former icu patient and realistically with my health probably going to be a future icu patient i want to keep seeing this progress going and i just i don't i I don't know how we how we keep it because the government will move, well, the government in the UK will move on to whatever the next crisis is to put money into. So how, or or do you think that with this big influx of money, we've improved things to a point where going back to the normal amount of funding or whatever will be, there's so many efficiencies have been improved that, that we'll be in a better state just by the fact that we've improved things so much, like with point of ultras, uh, point of uh, care ultrasound. Need to remember, I can't do seven thousand words on one breath. Now you've raised some absolutely wonderful points, and I think the first thing to do is let's just be very, very clear: the UK is still in a pretty terrible place in terms of intensive care provision. Before COVID happened, we had amongst the lowest number of intensive care beds per head of population in the quote-unquote Western world. And certainly in Europe, you know, we have about half the number of intensive care, care beds per head of population as Germany. And that in no doubt contributed to some of the decisions that were made as part of the pandemic and some of the significant challenges that we faced. The pandemic has essentially pushed everyone to try and expand intensive care units and lots of places are building new intensive care units and you're absolutely right there's lots of investment it's also made intensive care visible so people now finally understand that we don't just do very very sick patients we actually do a whole bunch of support to the hospital we're involved in elective surgery for instance and need and we need intensive care to be able to support a lot of the complex elective surgery that's going on and so those things have been great and the visibility has been great at the same time, human nature is such that out of sight is out of mind. So if there's no intensive care crisis and there's no bed crisis, there will be a boom and there will be a bust phase. The, and that is inevitable and that will happen. And the issue is, as you say, to try and actually try and make best of the boom phase and get the investment that we need and raise up all the right issues. Again, a lot of this stuff is beyond my pay grade. There are wonderful people in the UK Intensive Care Society and the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine who are batting very hard for the intensive care population and the government. You know, and you've also got intensive care patient groups like ICU Steps who are also making the case for intensive care provision, not just in the acute setting, but also the outpatient setting, you know, making the case for looking after the um, survivors of critical illness and um, providing support for them the chronically ill, for instance, and all of those things are actually really, really important. And that will, it is a big challenge. You're absolutely right. We need 
bodies. We need people. We need trained people. We need interested people. We need to retain the staff that we already have. There are big issues at the moment with burnout and post-traumatic stress disorder through COVID. And we need to recruit more people. And we need to create the intensive care environment that we actually really want and we probably really need. So there's some fantastic documents. There's a great document that was written by a prof Tim Evans, who's, God bless us all, a wonderful intensivist from the Brompton called The Future Hospital that described the future role of intensive care as this multimodal entity that just worked across hospital specialties to look after acutely unwell patients wherever they were, the wards, in outpatient clinic, whatever. We just did that. And that is probably what we should be trying to get back to. And I'm hoping that the whoever's listening, big figures in government and so on and so forth, will try and push for this vision of what should be as opposed to accepting what will minimally get us by. Yeah, I think I think you kind of bring a, an interesting topic there in that we go back to ICUs are, are you know, the, the ICU ward hasn't really changed in, in its kind of design and layout for, for a very long time. I know certainly the ICU in my hospital, I think, has been the same since the 70s. And we've learned a lot of things about medicine since the 70s. Yes, we have. And, and how to construct the best layouts for, for things in terms of bed placements and other things. But the other thing that I found through, through kind of work with Delirium is that quite a lot of ICUs are in basements and places with no windows and things like that are, are contributing to why ICU has an 80% delirium rate where it's 20% in the, in the hospital in general. And so I think right now is, there, is, is a great time with all of these ICUs being building, built, uh, for us to look at how we design ICUs and is, is the way that we're doing it the best way to do it, which is probably not because we, we seem to think that natural light is some sort of thing that only healthy people need. And I know there was a, a study in, in Oxford about how loud ICUs or how it's, it's the equivalent to a jackhammer at the patient's head and that the average sleep time a day for a patient in ICU is seven minutes. And all of these things contribute to why critically ill patients maybe don't get as well as, as as quickly as we would like is because we're not essentially created in an environment that gives them the best chance to to kind of recover. Because I think if if you gave yourself or me seven minutes sleep when we're healthy every day for, for three weeks, we're probably not going to be very healthy at the end of it. We're going to be extremely sleep deprived and we'll be in bad moods will not engage with things so you know is it a wonder why a lot of patients don't want to engage with physiotherapy occupational therapy and, and things like that i think there's a lot of things that we need to kind of examine and go are we doing that because it's the best thing to do or are we doing it because it's what we've always done and i think that's this is a big I'm not problem. I don't want to kind of label it as a problem, but it's a big issue in that we need, like as a society at large, but also in healthcare system, go, are we doing this for the right reason or are we just doing it because we haven't 
looked at the problem and figured out a better solution, or we just mm. that's just you know how we've always done it, so we're just going to keep doing it that way because that must be the best way. Because when we did it in the nineteen twenties, it was the best idea. So we'll a hundred years later, it's still the best thing to do. So I'm just yeah, I think I'm kind of hoping that with all this funding and all these units being built that we're we're taking time to reflect and go are we building this the best way and not just rebuilding yeah i think you're absolutely right and regarding kind of so you've touched on two things there actually oh well, well there's kind of two things i can touch on from there the first one is unit design and i don't know if you've had a chance to see the icu at utrecht in in the netherlands there's a if you get a chance you should have a little look at it there's a wonderful video on youtube that shows you and um i think it won like some 2015 architectural award something like that and it's exactly what you're talking about it's beautiful natural light um a rooftop garden plenty of space around the cubicles kind of privacy glass so that you don't need to have like the crappy curtains drawn drawn around all the time you can just press a button and get instant privacy loads of side rooms it's just this beautiful unit that just looks it's just purpose built and designed it was consult you know the the patients consulted with the doctors to design a unit that they thought uh, well patients and former patients and staff and relatives all just consult together to just build what they thought the modern intensive care unit should look like and it's amazing and there are a couple of units being built in the UK that are that are close to that model. So King's College in London, for instance, has just built a unit that's very much like that with lots of beautiful open space and natural light and with a rooftop garden that's actually got piped oxygen. So you can wheel patients up who are on ventilators and stuff and they can they can see the sunlight. And it's not it's not an issue of needing needing to pack the, you know, the usual portable ventilator and things like that. And that kind of stuff's wonderful. And that ties in with some of the stuff that with Point of Care Ultrasound, interestingly enough. Because there is a role with of point of care ultrasound, because we can use it to provide more accurate therapies. There is some talk of point of care ultrasound potentially limiting the amount of delirium that people get, partly by limiting the amount of fluid that people get. And there's poss- there's possibly also a role. I mean, this is very early stuff of using point of care ultrasound to look at brain flow, to try and identify who is likely to get delir- delirious or not, and potentially being able to change their management. I mean, this is all very, very early stuff and stuff that that's all still in research phases, but it's quite interesting. And it's exactly, as you say, you're absolutely right. We need to start giving people the, the intensive care that they deserve to make them better. And rather than relying on what doing what we've always done, try and do things, you try and move things forward and do things a little bit better. And people are doing this. Yeah. So you spoke about it on my, my favorite talk a bit of delirium. So that's kind of where um, I feel I'm the most kind of knowledgeable. Um, so I, I, I think point of ultrasound, uh, point of care ultrasound, just by its very process will reduce delirium. Um, I think when you're not moving a patient, mm. that reduces delirium. We know that. Uh, putting them in a scanner when they're not cognizant and aware uh, that that will increase delirium and seems to make it worse. Putting someone in an, an abnormal, constricted environment is not good for people in a delirious state. So point of ultrasound reduces that. So I, I think just by its very existence and use, it will reduce delirium. I know there's this sort of, of talk of creating delirium-free world Dr. Lindroth and, and various members at the American Delirium Society speak about that. And 
I think in the general wards, that might be a possibility. Right now, with the ICU world, I find it very hard to see us eliminating it. I think we we might get it to a level where it becomes a minor issue and not the big issue that it is until we get to a point of, of no sedation as being the the only way we do things. I don't see it because the, the drugs play a part. So um, as long as we're still using these drugs that we know induce delirium, it's going to be very hard for us to to eliminate it. And I know there's there's a lot of delirium research and what causes it and is it a TNF alpha pathway or IL one pathway or or is it a combination of seven hundred pathways? Um, yeah, so I don't think we're going to solve the delirium issue anytime soon. But if we could make it a minor issue, that's going to affect a lot of people. Even if we get delirium to 20% in the ICU, that's a massive reduction, which will have a massive knock-on effect post-ICU. And if we can eliminate it in the wards, this is a huge thing. And we should be trying to minimize all these things. But I just sometimes I think we aim too big. <laughs> and and I understand why we do that, because if you, if you aim at the star, you might hit the top of the tree. But if you aim at the top of the tree, you'll not get off the ground. But I think expectations also need to be managed because when you throw out a delirium-free world, people might expect that to be a viable Mm. thing. To sum up my long rambling answer, I think that point-of-care ultrasound will have a significant effect Mm. on delirium, even without it being used as a diagnostic uh, tool directly for delirium. The fact that you're not doing these things that we know make delirium worse or invoke delirium mm. will help. And then maybe we'll we'll get our crazy high numbers down and patients will be spending less time in ICU and we'll we'll all be happy because the less time people are on ICU the better. Oh that I don't love ICU, but as I say, I would I would rather not be back. Obviously that's not not viable if I have, if I have to have surgery again I'll be in ICU. But that's another Thing I think that the sort of pandemic has helped change the perception of ICU because of how film and media portray ICU. And this is one of the biggest things I hate <laughs> about films and media having been in ICU. You see people who have been in comas for three, four months, you know, they pull out the tube and they just walk out. Mm. I'm like, ah, that is. That is definitely not how that picture goes. I was in for three weeks in an intensive care and in an induced coma for 17 and I couldn't lift my finger. <laughs> when I woke up, I, I had lost a third of my, my body weight. So wow. I'm, I'm hoping that this will reframe sort of society's view of what, what it's actually like because I think film and media have lessened its importance in that way and that if if all you ever see is just people just walking out of it and it doesn't look like, well, that's not a big deal, is it? Because if people can walk out, they're sick and then they're not, and then they're just back to normal. I think that this has maybe helped sort of ground it more in reality, sort of show what it's actually like. 
Yeah, I think everything you've said, it's it's actually really beautiful, actually, hearing you reflect on that and hearing you suggest that point of carotidine can actually reduce delirium. And that's quite a nice thing to say. And I think you might be on to something there. That's something that we haven't really thought about, the fact that you have a familiar voice performing an investigation on you in an environment that stays constant as opposed to having to be moved to the strange place with lights and new voices etc and being laid flat and all that kind of stuff that can just be very uncomfortable i guess that that can actually be quite nice there's lots of aspects of point of carol sound that are quite nice you get to touch the patient so they might feel human contact and we get to speak to them so that can also feel quite nice so yeah so that's and those are important aspects actually that i'll be reflecting on after this conversation the other thing that you mentioned exactly about aims for delirium i mean yeah i'm sure you've heard the marginal gains spiel over and over again with team sky and with formula one how you, you know how you basically do tiny tiny things and it's tiny increments that put together that allow you to have a re- very rapid pit stop for instance and i think you're right i think a lot of improving delirium care will be just a sum of marginal gains and every little step do it doesn't have to be zero delirium overnight you know it probably won't be zero delirium overnight but we will take a whole bunch of marginal gains and all of them will add up to constantly and continually reduce the incidence and progression of delirium in our intensive care patients one of the biggest things that we need to think about as covid as people get vaccinated and as the covid numbers hopefully start coming down again is about family visiting and getting families back involved in the care of their relatives which I'm hopeful and also this gives us a chance to kind of relook and revisit the family patient provider interaction in crispr care and just try and set up cooperative mechanism where we're working together with families to improve their relatives health and I I have a feeling that that will probably play play a much bigger role in delirium than me me and my old sound pro but that you're the expert. I'll, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that. I, w- I always find weird when people call me an expert because I feel that's a sort of sham term for me. But I think that this is another area that I think COVID has been beneficial in. And then I know that sounds crazy with all the people that have died and the, the, the prolonged effect of this have had. But I think that it it will highlight how the absence of family and how the isolation and increase in PPE uh, usage uh, around the patients will have had fast effects and and how it will show the importance of these people, the familiarity. We know reorientating a patient with pictures of family and, and, and familiar voices are really helpful. And so I, I kind of expected that this was my big worry. Because when I go back to to March 2019, when it became a really big issue here in the UK, my first thought was, we're going to have a massive delirium issue. We're going to have a massive mental health issue, Mm. which to me is a cause and effect. Massive delirium issue causes massive mental health issue, only in the population of the patients. But I, I... fully expected that there would be a similar sort of effect on staff because of the isolation and the the fast changing outcomes that we were going to be facing a more significant 
mortality rate than would be normal, and I thought that was going to have a big effect. And the, I think that this has highlighted the importance of, of the things that were absent and the effect of the things that we added. So not being able to see people's faces, not being able to hear them clearly through PPE has had an effect. The absence of family and familiar voices and touch has had an effect. And so I hope that when we we reflect back on it, we go, actually, these things are really important, being clearly heard, you know, so making sure that they have all the things that, that they need. So if they need hearing aids, if they need glasses, ensuring that you're speaking to the patient because dentists and intensivists have a have a similar a mindset which frustrated me no end when I couldn't speak in ICU is that people talk over you but never to you and when you can't say anything they maybe don't understand whether they thought I wasn't quite aware or awake or whatever or because I wasn't complaining that that it wasn't a problem and I think that that you need to remember that if if I was having a conversation with someone else in front of you and we were just sitting we were just talking back and forth between me and them and just completely ignoring you, how how that would feel to you. That that you would feel that we were being quite rude in that. And it just feels like if there's a conversation that needs to be had uh, that that isn't for the patient, it shouldn't be happening at the patient because it's really frustrating. <laughs> and and I'm still I still uh, I'm annoyed by this like five years Afterward is when when people are just talking about you, um, it's quite annoying and and it's not an exclusive intensive care thing. I've had it happen to me on the wards. It just it and it's another thing that that just kind of you know you're you're at a very vulnerable point and that's another thing that's just kind of waiting at you at your kind of fragile state. Um, and I know like in my delirium pretty much everybody in the intensive care was the bad guy in my in my movie that that was my delirium experience except one person there was one nurse who wasn't on the bad guy side they were on my side and what i found once i was awake and aware was that they were the person that said oh we're doing this you know we're we're taking blood from your line or we're putting this in and we're doing and we'd always explain what they were going to do before they did it. And that seemed to have a real impact. We need to need to remember that it's, it's a person on the bed at the, at the end of the day. And that if they were fully aware, not in that bed, in a cafe or whatever, and you were, you were all sitting there, you wouldn't just talk amongst yourselves. Well, I hope you wouldn't. Maybe you would. I don't know. Just it just seems like some of these things, like you know, you were saying like little gains. I think these are gains that we can make to make a difference without having to do much in terms of of improvement. I think that's just a behavioural thing that would that would have a big difference. You think? Sorry to hear that you had such a they had those experiences, and and it's powerful that you're still angry about it. And I think that's entirely okay. It is what we do in ICU we're human beings and we forget and we forget that there's another human being there sometimes and it's not it's not great you know I'm guilty of doing it as well and I try and I'd like to think that I try to be better every day I probably still fail but I'd like to still try 
And you're absolutely right. And um, we should try and do that better. It's one of the, one of the, in my opinion, it's one of the reasons why I personally still, and I'm sure I'm, I know, I think I'm a bit of an outline in this. I like having families around during the ward round because I think they remind you that you're talking to a person, that you're dealing with a person and they direct your conversation towards the patient. And I think it can be quite difficult. There clearly needs to be rules of engagement set so that the families don't kind of end up digressing and taking the conversation away from the patient and towards maybe themselves and what they want and what they're doing. But I do think that anything that we can do to recognize the personhood of the person that we of the patient that we're looking after and whether that's the about me boards and making sure that every patient has an about me board that's filled in or whether that's dressing people in their normal clothes minimizing sedation making sure that people are out of bed as much as possible so that they just look more human and act more human and those are all marginal gains that probably affect the psychology of our psychology as as healthcare practitioners and allow us to treat people in a more dignified and humane fashion. And hopefully that will mean that your experiences like yours become experiences of the past. I think I'd really like that. Yeah. I, I think when, when I'm speaking about my my ICU and I'm not criticizing how they specifically did things because I think the care that I received in, in the ICU was was pretty good. You know, I think that a lot of people got a lot worse um, care care than me. I got excellent care in ICU. I got follow up while I was in the hospital from HDU, uh, well into my my journey out of the door, which was seventeen weeks. I then received post ICU clinic care. So, like when when I'm talking about my ICU, and I'm just saying this for for everyone listening. I'm not saying they're they're terrible. In fact, quite quite the opposite. They they are brilliant, but I want them to be. I want every ICU to be as brilliant or more brilliant. I want I want everyone everywhere to get the absolute best care. And sometimes we need to say the things that are that are not great, even if they are minor things. We always want to get things better because I want the person who's in that ICU bed just now to have better care than what I had. And it's not because I had bad care. It's because I want everyone else to get better care than I I got. Absolutely. And I think some of these issues would be redressed when we when we're involved in the kind of discussion of of how to build an ICU. I think that perhaps I know some some places are having a more pod system where there's a central place and, and beds around it where discussions could be had in that central place beyond the the bed where discussions can be had about patients without it being at patient mm. and i think some of that will address a lot of the issues i have but i think it's just yeah i just i just wanted to make sure that it's kind of i'm not having a go at empty here i'm not i'm not sitting here from my my very high horse and saying all oh, these these intensivists are, are terrible like i understand that intensive intensive care nurses and doctors and all these specialties do a phenomenal job considering what they're being asked to do you know and and the reason that i fight so hard on delirium and so hard on intensive care is because they have fought so hard for me when i was in intensive care and i want to make it better not just for me but for the staff 
because to me, I always think of ICU as the hardest place to work mm. because everybody is in a terrible state. If you work on a gastro ward, maybe some of your patients are very bad, but, but probably not all of them. So to me, it's a very hard place to work. Obviously, I don't work there, but I, I lived there for, for a wee while and it's not a great place <laughs> to be. So, yeah, so, you know, I, everything I do is to try to make things better. That's why I have these discussions is to try and figure out because while I might think the things I think are right, they're probably not all. I might get I might get a few things that are what we need to do, but the only way we will improve anything is if we all have discussions. And that was the kind of point of this podcast was patients and clinicians don't often have frank and honest conversations. And I think that sometimes we need to to have more because I don't know if it's a, a kind of fear thing from us that we that we as pa- well we as patients don't often get invited to the table. Let's let's just we we don't or at least until very recently we weren't overly asked to be involved in things. I certainly found that at the start. You'll probably remember when I started on 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 Twitter. I just started. You know, I went, oh, there's an intensive care conversation. I'm going to insert my opinion in there. And it's not always well received, but quite often it's a, a sort of refreshing take because I think it's very easy to, when, when you're taught X, Y, Z, if you're not given a context to why X, Y, Z is important or maybe a context to why maybe we shouldn't do X, Y, Z, everything nothing changes until it's challenged so the thought behind this podcast and 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 everything i do is is sort of a check that's i like i like to think of myself as a check to the balance i'm sitting here going is this the best thing to do and then if people come back as a general and go yeah yeah it is then i'm like i've done my i've done my job but sometimes it'll be oh actually no that's not and i think I think certainly we're having more PPI involvement in research at early stages. So we're, we're, we're moving in the right way because I found a lot of time research was done to answer a researcher's curiosity rather than to have a purpose. And we seem to be moving more to being grounded in, in a benefit purpose in healthcare. So things are being researched because they're important rather than because we want to know the answer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, uh, those are fantastic points again. And you're right. We should, the this new world of improving intensive care, of bringing investigations to the bedside, of involving the family at the bedside and making everything more patient-centered, will, is essentially about bringing patients to the center of the conversation again. And it not being about the physiology, which we love as intensivists, and we love fiddling around with ventilators and making doctors go down and all this kind of thing on not being about intellectual curiosity, it actually being about making people better. And that's what we should do. We should, you know, you've probably heard Nitin say this, that the intensive care unit is actually the relationship repair unit, because that's what we do. We try and prevent relationships from being destroyed too too soon, really. That's what we need to bring it back to. Yeah, I think, so in intensive care, I always think does a lot of jobs. So they have, they have 
an intensive care unit has to has to perform a lot of functions. So you're you're like highly skilled in the management of the medicine issues, which are broad. <laughs> you're you're also experts in in sort of forming the team within the intensive care, but also bringing in other teams and then working smoothly with those other teams, whether that be nephrology or cardiology or or these things to manage the highly specialized issues within a patient's problems but also part of managing expectations and family and also ensuring that that family is 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 sort of still i don't want to say function but is still holding together and then a bit of palliative stuff if it progresses to a stage where you can't treat the disease and note that palliative is an end of life care people just a, a point of point of note because that that's another thing that kind of palliative medicine is another thing that kind of suffers from the bad press so yeah all of these different things that intensivists have to oh, i keep saying intensivists intensive care teams have to be skilled in so user these are very much the spinning many plates and trying to keep them all up without things uh, uh, breaking. And it's you don't you are highly trained experts in your area, but you also have to be highly skilled in all of these other things that maybe aren't as immediately important in other areas. So managing a team that might be consistent of three or four different specialties while managing the the critical things and getting to the problem and managing family and managing um that's that's not sort of working with family for the patient and ensuring everything is going right it's it's very intense as as the name would suggest so these are these are also things that maybe just don't don't get seen or don't get talked about that all they're you're not just managing the the medical issues you're you're maybe managing social issues and and a whole host of other things outside of just the really difficult managing of the medicine aspect there, there seemed to be a movement and, and i really dislike it to to change the icu term to an itu so intensive treatment instead of intensive care unit and i've always been of the point of I would rather be cared for than treated. Yep. I, I want you to care for me intensively. Treating me intensively is is kind of what I'm expecting when I come to a hospital. I'm expecting you to treat me because I don't I don't come from my holidays, regardless of what some people that know me might think. Terrible food. Yeah, I just I think that we need to we need to remember that this goes beyond just treating. There's all this big movement about patient-centered care, and I just always want to make sure that it's not just words. Yeah, it's very easy to say, "Oh, we practice patient-centered care," but we need to remember what that actually means beyond words. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. You can stop treatment, but you should never stop caring. That's why we—it's called intensive care. Do Do you think there's anything during the COVID crisis that has been highlighted that is it's a sort of area that maybe wasn't known before to be a problem or an area that 
you maybe thought that you, you hadn't thought about but that has became sort of more important? What I think that COVID has really done is highlight the incredible amounts of skills, training and compassion that our intensive care nursing colleagues have. I think the role of the intensive care nurse may have been overlooked and dismissed, not just by the general public, because it's all about the doctors, but also by other nursing colleagues who are like, oh, you only have one patient to deal with all day. How hard can that be? And then the COVID crisis hit and people got to volunteer in intensive care. They got to see the amazing amount of work our nursing colleagues actually did. And now basically everybody, I'm hoping that everybody understands that intensive care is really intensive nursing care. And it's about good, awesome, excellent, consistent nursing care and our nursing teams are worth their weight involved and they deserve a 200% pay rise and they should be given whatever they need both physically mentally and financially to provide the awesome excellent care that they did and continue to do that got so many people through COVID and that's I think that's my take-home message I had you know we had you know in the trust I worked in, we had cardiology consultants um, volunteer as intensive care healthcare assistants um, during the peak of the pandemic, and they got to see what it was like firsthand and their opinions of what we do have completely changed as a result. I'm hoping that, for me, that's a really, really big crux. And that, for me, is one of my biggest focuses going forward, is how to improve the, improve the experience and well-being of my intensive care nursing colleagues. Yeah, I think I, I always find that as a sort of weird argument of critical care nurses only manage one patient at an intensive care level or two patients at a high dependency level. I was like, in intensive care, you're handling every function of a human being's body. Mm. You know, you're you're managing large amounts of drugs that are being induced, you're taking arterial bloods, you're watching uh, ventilator settings and monitoring condition and yeah you're basically controlling an entire person's life and and everything that's happening and the idea that's viewed that flippantly as if oh you're only managing one person it's like yeah because that is such a such a intense <laughs> amazingly enough job yeah that, that that is all a human being can do. It just it, it boggles the mind that they think a ward setting is the same as an ICU setting. There is absolutely no way that you can manage two people in intensive care. And I know that not everywhere has the UK standard of one-to-one nursing. And when I hear that, it always sends a sort of sharp terror into my heart um, because I... I, I I think one-to-one is the bare minimum. Mm. And I certainly know that some patients need two or three nurses to one, depending on how complex and how many bits of kit are are needed to be managed. And yeah, this a very underrated and and as you say, quite often, and and I did it in my own uh, talks earlier when I speak about intensivists, when I really mean the intensive care unit, the intensive care team is that we sort of have it comes from the sort of very olden days where the doctors were were above it all they were the mm-hmm. the managers and 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 such perfect beings yes exactly but everyone listened to and 
the fact is that that's not how the world works. Nurses are not are not beneath doctors, as you say, they're they're colleagues. These are mm. these are experts in different areas. You're an expert in medicine, they're an expert in nursing, and they're not the same thing. They're very different skill sets, very different skills that are needed to perform the jobs. As if you ask a doctor to do a nurse's job, they would not be able to do it anywhere near as, as well as I would expect. If you asked a nurse to do a doctor's job, they wouldn't be able to. It's because they're not they're not the same. And we need to kind of move away from this sort of thinking. But I think that's that's a very big societal issue that needs to be addressed that will not be sorted anytime soon. But we're we're certainly moving in the right way. We need to move fast. There's so many so many things that we don't do well that really shouldn't we you know, that we know are wrong and we just need to kind of speed them up on the way to get into the the common sense place. In the certainly in the intensive care environment, you know, the critical care nurses are our stars, but we also often forget about the other healthcare professions that, that exist that kind of just don't get forgotten uh, get forgotten about, we just don't think of. No, I think everybody knows that doctors and nurses exist in the healthcare environment regardless of what where you go. There's always doctors, there's always nurses, whatever department it is, that's that's how it is. But we forget about the occupational therapists, the physiotherapists, the dietitians, psychologists, all these other parts that are sort of surrounding this kind of core of patients, nurses, doctors, but without these other uh, specialties, there would be a lot harder time for, for patients. And certainly in the ICU setting, the psychologists are often facilitating with staff as well, and their well-being. And that plays a huge part because the healthier the staff is, mm. you know, whether, whether you want to look at it as a purely selfish things the better the health of the staff the better the work is that's like it's not it's not a rocket science yeah if we if we have everybody in their best condition they will do their best work so don't have them doing 20 uh, 24 hour shifts we, we learned that one very slowly and have these we, we offer psychology to the patients who have went through a traumatic experience I hate to tell you, it's not less traumatic for staff. So how come it's took so long? Because up, up until the pandemic, this really wasn't done. <laughs> Support for the staff was was resiliency training, which mm. I know I know will will trigger almost every healthcare professional in that it is possibly the dumbest thing I may have ever heard. And I know other Healthcare professionals won't say it, so I will. I will say it. The idea that staff are not resilient enough to do their job is is insulting to them. Um, that this is a strength issue that you're just not tough enough. I think whoever came up with this idea needs to have a a few weeks shifts in the ICU, and then you know when they're a bubble a bubbling mess in the corner. That they'll maybe understand that it's not that these people are are soft or weak or whatever. It's that this is a very traumatic environment, and and even in wards, 
it, it can be very traumatic. I know probably back nearly 20 years ago, I was being looked after by a nurse and the bed across my way three consecutive nights on her three consecutive shifts, the patient across from me died. So the idea that, that that's not traumatic and that you should just be able to cope with it is ridiculous. And that's, that's essentially what resiliency training is, is, well, you just need to, you just need to learn to cope with it better. I don't like to swear, but I would swear at this point. It, it, when I hear it, it always, it always irons me. <laughs> and I'm sure it irons everybody that's been asked to do the stupid training. Completely. Yeah. It's so detached. Mm. It just, it just boggles my mind that did they, did they, actually speak to anyone who's ever done the job or any of these jobs as to whether this would be useful because it just seems like a tick box always oh, trained them also oh, if they break down it, it's their fault no no that's that's not how they work if they broke down it's because you've not supported them in the right way that's a you problem not a they problem you have not created an environment that that gives them the support needed to do their job and that's the very bare minimum, the very, 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 very bare minimum that we shouldn't have these jobs that destroy people because that's essentially what we're doing. We're, we're, chewing, we're chewing people up and spitting them out when they become not useful. And that's an in inverted commas. It's just, it, it's, and, and I'm, I'm finding myself getting angry when I'm talking about it. And I'm trying, mm. I'm trying to um, be as level as I can, but it's very, it's very hard mm. to see how mistreated the people that we're expecting to care for us when we're at our worst is and that yeah it just it just shouldn't happen and and this sort of mental health support systems that seem to be setting up should have existed beforehand and that we shouldn't have waited until we started seeing hundreds of people break down mm. to actually sort the problem yeah it's a I mean, the, the history of mental health slash well-being and medicine is a checkered one. You know, remember, medicine developed at a time when there really wasn't a lot in the way of treatment. And a lot of what we did, you know, back in the early days of medicine was essentially hold people's hands. We, we had a couple of things. Anesthesia was just about being developed. So we could do pretty basic surgery. We didn't really have much in the way of antibiotics. And we didn't really have, we didn't have lots of complex drugs that we have now. So a lot of treatments was essentially very brutal surgery or just kind of holding people's hands and supporting them. So there was a sense of you need to have a stiff upper lip and you probably did at the time because you just had to, or at least the way they coped with it was just have a stiff upper lip and get on with things. And as times have changed, we have the ability to offer a lot more therapy and that's brought with it a whole much more, a lot more moral distress. And so the way we, we as clinicians need to interact with our emotions and our patients has also needed to change. But that's been quite slow and it's been quite difficult. And we have actually been amongst the biggest, sadly, um, have been amongst the biggest drivers of the quote-unquote resilience movement because, quite frankly, there are a lot of us who didn't want to hear each other's pain. And it's much easier to say, go off and be resilient than it is to say, I'm really sorry, tell me about your pain because I can see myself reflected in what your horrible experience has been. And that means that the system that we've trained in is, and we work in, isn't very nice and we need to change that. That's just a very difficult thing to say. I think 
yeah, again, at the crux of the the sort of problem here is the how we've always how we've always done it, and that we need to get to a point where it's okay to talk about this issue, uh, and and if that means facilitating a service that is out with talking to your to your peers, but you're talking to psychologists or or whatever service develops that we start start out it's okay to talk mm. and then once that's sort of settled in it will be okay to talk within your team because this this will be a hard problem to fix and i'm not i'm not being flippant about it i have had terrible mental health issues i've had depression i've had ptsd i currently have anxiety I'm very familiar with mental health issues. I don't take them lightly, but we need to do something here because this is a ticking time bomb that seems like we've abandoned. This resiliency movement feels to me from an outside view, rightfully, that we seem to have abandoned the clinicians and nurses and everybody else to sort of cope in silence and cope in the dark and that we know that that doesn't work we would never we would never say to an icu patient what is essentially suck it up and cope with it we just we, we wouldn't do that so why are we expecting that of the people that we are asking to care for people whether it's the intensive care environment or any other environment oncology or or any ward or or these things this this and it's possibly a societal issue again, particularly for our our gender, although less so of our generation, sort of the older generation, you don't talk about your emotions. That's not a thing. And and we kind of need to we need to change the norms and there are movements for that, but we need to get to a place where people are okay to say that they're not okay. That that they won't be shamed or shunned or looked down on for saying, do you know what, guys, I'm having problems here. I'm not able to cope or whatever. And that that will be met with a, a caring environment and a caring society at large. And that the idea that the humans that are doctors, nurses, and, and whatever other healthcare fields are impervious to mental health issues is, is just mind-boggling. Um, that we know repeated trauma causes problems from soldiers and combat, these other things that have happened. So how do we not understand the trauma that, that the healthcare professionals experience would, would have a, a similar effect on them, on their, their mental health, as well as the inherent high pressure sort of environment of, of the system that we've created that people's lives are in your hands. That's very stressful, I imagine. It seems very stressful to me. So that's, you're putting stress, you're putting an environment where there's no outlet, there's no, there's no relief to this system. There's no, there's no methods of, of easy methods of getting help or talking about it. We're, we're creating a pressure cooker of bad mental health systems. And we're surprised that people are, are breaking down. And it just seems like, COVID has sort of not, not, I think we kind of knew it was a problem, but it's, it's showing it to be a big problem and that we need to quickly, I think, move 
to to kind of create some sort of relief system, whether it be through the sort of psychology support for staff or 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 services auxiliary to it. So I, I don't know what your view of that is. Uh, if you if you feel comfortable, if you don't feel comfortable, don't feel that you have to talk about it. You may or may not know. I have a very personal experience of burnout, having deal with my wife having significant issues, having to leave medicine and be a carer because she was so unwell from burnout, from medical burnout. So this is not a new thing. This has been an issue for a very long time that we have taken a long time to get around to dealing with. And COVID isn't actually what caused it. COVID is just the straw that broke the camel's back. And you're absolutely right. This is absolutely imperative that we start making measures to manage the mental health of care providers. If you look at if you look at the military, the military have known about this for years and they have huge structures in place to provide psychological support, both peer-to-peer and in terms of formally. They spend a lot of time with debriefs, with mental health support, with mental health awareness programs. And they see, and certain, certain military organizations, certainly in Canada, they actually see that workplace, they don't call it burnout, they actually call it occupational stress disorder. And they see it as a workplace-induced injury. And it is a workplace-induced injury. And once you see it that way, it attracts compensation. And if it attracts compensation, then people take it seriously. And we really, really, really do need to take it seriously across all healthcare spectrums. So not just doctors and nurses, OTs, physios, pharmacists, dietitians. They can all experience this occupational stress injury. And once we start thinking about it that way and we start making active efforts, which include, as you say, a culture of openness and psychological safety, where people no longer feel ashamed to not be okay, that is so important. I think those steps, those starting steps will be really, really important towards starting to redress this injurious culture that has damaged so many people and continues to damage people as we speak. Yeah, so I'm I'm very sad starting to hear about your your uh, I, I find the term burnout almost offensive I think that it kind of implies that you're sort of being used up and a you know the occupational stress injury sounds better to me because it's more descriptive of what the actual problem is burnout sounds like it's a new problem yeah and that that's why I dislike the term and there's a lot of things that we use in language and I think that they're sort of callously used, whether it be in society or otherwise. So the terms like the use of the word delirious in common society to mean like excited has really, I think, hampered the actual meaning of delirium. And I think it's similar here in burnout. Um, burnout puts the blame in the wrong place from, from how I look at it. If you say someone is burned out, that sounds like it's uh they weren't they weren't good enough or tough enough or whatever way you want to learn it. And that's a hundred percent not the case. If someone has burned out, got an occupational stress uh, disorder or or injury or, or whatever language you want to address it as, that's not their fault. They've done nothing wrong. They've performed their job, their function, and have been, it equates to, like I worked in, in a pharmaceutical company for a, for a while. It would be the equivalent of asking someone, 
in a pharmaceutical plant to go and do their job without fire protective overalls or without chemical protection because that is essentially what we're what you're asking you have not provided the equipment or means to do the tasks properly so you've not protected them from a clear and reasonable danger that you can in advance mitigate this isn't this isn't a oh this was something that we didn't know about or or anything that we've knew this is a thing for for a very long time and we've we've neglected it and i don't as you say i don't think covid created the issue what i think is that it created the worst possible setting for it i think that it upped all the bad issues and took away a lot of the of the sort of good things the sort of positive things that maybe people held on to with seeing family excited to see all these positive interactions that maybe help to dampen down the bad interactions and all of the bad interactions got cranked up to 12 and we created this has created sort of like pressure cooker and it has increased the pressure and it's increased the heat and we've just created an well, it's created an environment that has made it in possibly the worst kind of possible outcomes that we could expect so absolutely I, I don't think that it's created the problem but i think that it's made the problem so bad that no one can see it that that it's now so blankly obvious that we can't not you know it, it's so in your face now that we can't reasonably as good people say this isn't a problem and and hopefully because i have i've seen a lot of burnout from my friends and people talking about leaving medicine and nursing and and like as a patient i feel like i should go oh well maybe you should try and hang in there and then the friend part of me is like well f them if they're not if they're not like protecting you then f them because no job is worth it no literally no job in the world is worth you sacrificing your health whether it be physical or mental health and and we are essentially asking both of people and it's just not it's not on it's not kosher yeah they they shouldn't accept it and we shouldn't expect it and and yeah this needs to be addressed quickly and and seriously this is this isn't like our delirium discussion where we're going to we need to progress and well, we're going to progress and, and sort of marginal gains we need we need to make a major gain quickly or we're going to end up with nobody nobody in healthcare we're going to end up with no staff and it's like the discussion of of all these new ventilators everybody was talking about at the start of the pandemic is machines do nothing machines do what people tell them to so you could have you could have all the fancy equipment, all the fancy ventilators and scanners and things like that. If you've got if you've got no staff, then they're just very expensive paperworks. The most important part of the healthcare system is the staff. If you don't you don't look after the staff, you've got nothing. You have absolutely nothing. Yeah, I just yeah, it is it's a it's a very sensitive topic for 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 everyone like you, you yourself obviously haven't been affected by it personally and obviously i'm sure you're, you'll have seen lots of colleagues affected by it 
but the the idea that oh this only affects staff is it's a ridiculous thing because if staff are burning out that affects patients if we're going to be really cynical about it and you're just going to look at it from that is you're going to spend more money because you're going to have less staff so more staff are going to have to be brought in from wherever if you're going to be really cynical about it you think about patient-centered care just putting the person back in the middle of of it but we don't practice that for staff we forget that doctors and nurses and every other healthcare profession are people <laughs> and that you're not robots you have emotions you have needs these very basic things that we should be looking after in our staff we're, we're not doing and it's uh it's infuriating because i'm seeing lots of really great people who are great doctors nurses physios occupational therapists dietitians all the other one talking about leaving healthcare and it infuriates me that the reason isn't want to necessarily leave healthcare but that the have to leave healthcare because it's so damaging to them. I, I'm really angry to the point that I can't construct sentences, but I am incandescently enraged because if people mistreated patients this way, they would be struck off or they would be criminally prosecuted. If a clinical practitioner neglected the patients to the point that we've neglected as a society, healthcare staff, they would be criminally prosecuted and they wouldn't be practicing. So why is it okay the other way about? Why can't we see this? And it yeah, I just yeah. I'm sure you're you're as angry about it, but there's lots of things in the world that I don't understand why it is, but this one seems like that I just don't get it. I don't get why even if if it's only out of self interest, why we don't do better. Yeah, it's it's a complicated one because partly because it's also such a difficult one to look at because one of the things to remember is that if you are going to start looking at people's moral distress and the moral injury that people are experiencing, which is a lot of what this is. I, I don't know if you understand the concept of moral injury. Uh, if you, you want to explain it, because even if I know. Yeah, so it's something that has been, so again, a lot of, We've been using lots of terms very kind of interchangeably. So what people like burnout was kind of where the term kind of started from. So this was described in like the late 70s by a guy called Friedenberger, if I remember, and then was adapted by a lady called Christina Maslach, who's done lots of work on it and basically done this basically like kind of the world expert in burnout. And burnout was used to describe because it actually comes from from drug abuse and drug abuse and drug abusers who use the phrase burnt out to describe how they felt when they just felt completely wasted. He borrowed that term to describe what was happening to healthcare workers when they just felt flat and they felt like they had nothing left to give. And we, that's now gone into everything. So when people say burnout, they kind of just talk to, some, sometimes the term can seem almost flippant because it describes kind of, oh, you know, I've overworked, a bit stressed and I'm burnt out. And the phrase moral injury has come more and more into the literature because what we're experiencing, what people are describing is something very similar to what happens to soldiers on the battlefield when they're forced to make a decision that fundamentally goes against their moral code with something like, I don't know, I'm shooting down somebody who happens to be a mother of two children. You know, that person's a, da that person's a dangerous foe. You know, that, that kind of stuff leaves a mark and causes 
a moral injury that we recognize actually impacts on people's future lives and future ability to engage in that kind of work again. And what we're seeing in healthcare and what people are recognizing a lot of healthcare is moral is actually moral injury on a pretty large scale, especially when people are asked to deviate from what they consider to be best care. And how we manage that moral injury overall is actually really, really quite important. And But the big problem with trying to manage other people's moral injury, it means recognizing your own. And most of us don't want to recognize our own moral injury. We, in healthcare, we tend to deal with a lot of things by burying our emotions. I mean, literally, that is the only way that you can go from having a cardiac arrest in front of you, where the patient, unfortunately, despite your best effort, doesn't survive, to 10 minutes later resuming your ward round. You kind of put your issues on the shelf and move on. The challenge with that is that that leads to injury because it means you never go back to deal with those issues. And we as a community have a lot of, you've probably heard the saying that every doctor or every healthcare practitioner carries around their own personal graveyard. And this is that. Trying to address moral injury as a community means addressing your own and dealing with your own personal graveyard. And that can be quite hard. And so I think as a community, we take baby steps towards that, towards trying to heal together. If I heal my colleague who is suffering, I myself get healed. And I certainly found this and I'm continuing to find this with my relationship with my wife. As she has, as she heals from her moral injury, I also experience a degree of catharsis, a degree of healing and a degree of transcendence as I start to move past my own horrible experiences. So, yeah, it's a similar thing to what happens in, in like intensive care support groups for patients. So it's sort of talking, especially in the initial phases, people don't want to talk about what happens. You want to just put it in a nice wee neat box, throw it in the back of the brain and move on. Um, and then the support groups sort of you're you're confronted by by that issue, either because your ability to keep that box closed has failed, or or um, or whatever. So like peer support is is a great concept, but and is very useful in that helping someone else cope helps you cope. Uh, it's a similar sort of method of the best way to learn something is to teach it yeah absolutely and you you pick up more or you keep more by teaching it to someone else but is there a place for people who are not in the the sort of active so like maybe psychological support services who are not whose specialty is just dealing with staff who don't don't have that sort of sort of moral injury in themselves but can help so i think the problem is kind of getting everybody's moral injury levels down and i know like i'm going to speak in a very general term and i'm not yeah again i'm not lessening the issue or i'm trying to to talk through the problem because i I don't know the solution but um, i'm just thinking of things is the is it that we need to get everyone else everybody's moral injury level down to a level uh, where sort of peer support becomes the normal and we start so we get everybody down and then the new people at the bottom we create a talking environment so moral injury doesn't build up and so we start to get to a point where we're relieving the pressure before the pressure becomes cataclysmic like it has 
in the current system. But obviously, this isn't a we're going to fix it overnight. This is a decades long problem. But how how do we obviously we're like me and you are, are are not going to come up with a solution. But I'm hoping that this conversation maybe stimulates some other mm. thought. But is the way to address it to sort of have people are outside of the, the sort of direct care provide support to help reduce the moral injuries in the current staffing and then create a sort of peer environment uh, for the new staff to help reduce mm. the sort of not let it not let this sort of accumulation of moral injury happen sort of create an environment where it's where it's okay to to talk about it or or even create active sort of sessions or groups where where it happened where you're given time to speak about issues and, and not let it accumulate because it's is the accumulation of it is that i'm speaking naively because i'm naive to it this is not an issue i i have in context i have experience in my own mental health issues but they were so this seems to me like death by a thousand cuts that it's not one major major incident so my most of my mental health issues came from the major icu onslaught that sort of shattered my mental health into tiny little pieces that have caused the the subsequent issues where this seems like more of a a sort of constant injury over time that has caused it so can we address it like intensely to kind of deal with the massive problem just now and then create an environment where we don't let it accumulate is that something do you think that's feasible or is i don't know yeah so the the challenge with healthcare is if we really want to address moral injury we have to redesign healthcare from the ground up that's in many ways the biggest problem it's we work in an environment that generates that actively generates moral injury the shift work the huge amounts of documentation the lack of access to things like hot food at all hours, safe transport at all hours. There are so many aspects of our healthcare that just directly generate it that we'd have to start from there to redress it from the ground, from that aspect. It's mostly an environmental issue. At the same time, we also need the peer-to-peer issue as well, and we need to deal deal with it in terms of some of the individual aspects. And exactly as you say, well, a well-developed network of psychological support, both from peers and from professionals, is absolutely vital. So the way to do it is you actually need to do, you you, you need a two-pronged approach. However, if you look at the most up-to-date data, the bulk of the responsibility lies with the environment and with trying to create environment that's conducive for actually allowing people to function at a level that's not morally injurious. If you look, if you speak to people that have actually experienced burnout and moral injury, it's not necessarily the individual events. In some cases it is, but for the most part, you know, I I can speak for myself as an intensivist. I know that I go to work and I work in an environment where the mortality rate of the, one in four of the patients I look after will die just from pure statistics. And that aspect of it, I'm okay with because I know that part of my job is not about saving people's lives, but it's also about looking after people and repairing relationships in a, in a kind of, and providing a quote unquote good death, that makes any sense. That aspect of it, I'm okay with. It's when there are structural issues in my workplace that stop me from providing that care that causes moral injury. So when the computer for the 15th time doesn't work, when I'm being, you know, when I've got 
five different things to do, but there's only one of me. And that means I can't have the family conversation. That means that that family can achieve closure and they can provide them with good death. When there's nursing shortages, which means that my nursing colleague who's looking after that patient is stressed and overworked and harangued, they can't get a break, which means that she can't provide the detailed care or get the appropriate drug therapy that they need to provide them with comfort in their good death. Those are the little things. Those are, those are the arrows. And that's what causes the, that's what causes the thousand cuts that leads to death. I think, you know, you talked about redesigning the healthcare system. And I think a lot of issues that we have uh, in the current healthcare system from the patient side, from the staff side, comes from we keep trying to update a system that is vastly outdated. So how I think of it is healthcare system is like we're running on Windows 3.0 and we keep trying to patch updates and we keep trying to make it make it work and what we're doing is making it the bare functional instead of going this isn't working anymore we now need to move to windows 10 and going what we've got is broke it's broke to the point that we can't fix it anymore that things have moved so far that this is no longer how things are working and i get that that's an idealist look at it and that this this thought process that i'm having would cost huge amounts of investment that isn't going to be easily attained without without some sort of massive strength argument. But the fact is, if we don't redesign, if we don't completely change how we pretty much do everything, we're not going to be able to cope with our populations are increasing, but our numbers of doctors and nurses are not keeping up with that rate. So we need, we need to do things better. A, to retain those staff because these injuries are, are reducing these people. But we, we also need to make it more efficient so that you're not spending half of your shift writing up documentation or trying to get computer systems to work and all these other things that are just things that shouldn't be barriers. Um, it just, yeah, there's, there's so many things are not broken, but just don't work in healthcare system and we're just trying to keep update a model that was developed when we still had surgery theaters with people watching and it just i just hope that that we can change it I, either even and this is not really an acceptable thing even if we moved from the windows 3.0 highly patched version of healthcare that we have just now and we moved to windows 7 you know like still behind the times but vastly forward then maybe we can we can sort of move forward in in large chunks rather than one massive chunk but i just feel that we keep trying to fix little bits of the problem and it's just not it's not going to work long term and we need to really look at it and know that this is beyond what you and i can do as people that this is a like a, a societal government level issue in in the uk and it's unlikely that they're gonna do such a big drastic change but feels like it's going to come when it's going to need to happen or we're just not going to have a healthcare system yeah i completely agree with you we have to look at this now we really do was there was there anything else you wanted to talk about because i see where yeah i think that's quite a tour de force on lots of topics that are pertinent to critical care and critical care in the modern environment yeah so it's been it's been great chatting actually
So it, it's been great to have you on. Was there anything that you were wanting to promote or talk about? Obviously, you spoke about your your uh, cake and confectionery website. Is there anywhere else? And if you just want to say again how people can contact you or find you on the internet. Yeah, so I am quite active on Twitter. So you can usually find me on Twitter at Iceman underscore EX. If you want some cake, you can find our cake company at monanycakes.com. And if you're interested in point of care ultrasound in the UK and internationally, actually, because we're starting to do a point of care certification internationally, you can look up Fusic UK, go to the Internal Care Web, um, Society website, ics.ac.uk, and click on the link for Fusic. And that will take you towards our fairly comprehensive ultrasound accreditation with more stuff to come. So it's been great to have you, Shagan. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. And thank you for your time. Same here, man.